0: Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. Tonight we begin a four-part series on a topic that is near and dear to the hearts of people all over the world, the care and well-being of our children. This program is part of the 2014 University of Iowa Provost Global Forum on Child Protection, a Global Responsibility, and we're fortunate to be able to gather such a rich group of international experts for our World Canvas discussion tonight. As I mentioned, our theme is child abuse and neglect, uh, sadly a global reality, and one that has long-lasting impacts on children, the adults they become, and the societies they live in. But in addition to discussing the prevalence of child abuse and neglect, uh, we'll also explore interventions and treatments that may be appropriate both before and after the abuse occurs. So I'd like to introduce our guest for this first segment, in which we'll be discussing the lasting effects of childhood trauma and toxic stress. Just next to me is Dr. Resme Oral, professor of Pediatrics and the director of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Child Protection Program. Welcome, Resmi.: Thank you Jill. Thank you. And uh, next to Resmi is uh, Dr. Desmond Runyon, professor of Pediatrics and the director of the Kemp Center for Prevention and Treatment of Child Abuse and Neglect at the University of Colorado. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And at the far end, we have Dr. George Nikolaitis, psychiatrist and director of the Department of Mental Health and Social Welfare and the Center for Study and Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect at the Institute of Health in Greece. Welcome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, I want to start with some sort of shocking statistics here. Um, Statistics detailing the numbers of abused and neglected children in Iowa and around the world, I think, are are pretty stunning. Uh, Here are some Iowa numbers. In 2012, Almost 12,000 Iowa children were found to have been abused and or neglected, 79% of of whom were neglected, 9% physically abused, 4% sexually abused, and 7% drug endangered. Internationally, studies show that as many as 30% of the child population, depending upon the country, have been affected by some form of child abuse and or neglect. We're going to be referring tonight to something called ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, and I'm going to ask Dr. Aral to explain to us what sorts of things qualify as adverse childhood experiences.
1: Adverse childhood experiences have been uh, studied since 1990s or so. Dr. Vincent Felitti uh, from San Diego actually uh, first noticed the presence of adverse childhood experiences in his client population um, in a weight management clinic. And he categorized those uh, adverse experiences into three uh, distinct categories, one being family dysfunction, which included uh, parental separation or absence, um, domestic violence in the home, mental health problems, substance abuse problems, or any household member um, going into jail as a result of criminal activity. Um, In addition, childhood abuse experiences, including Uh, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. And lastly, neglect experiences, including uh, emotional and physical neglect, were included in that study. Um, Obviously, these are not only uh, trauma uh, experiences um, in a child's life. There are many more, especially if we consider the international context. Uh, War is one. uh, people finding themselves in refugee camps, et cetera, are some of the um, adversities uh, in childhood. Uh, But even in our own society, um, people fleeing uh, war zones and coming to our society in addition to being bullied in school and other trauma experiences may be included too. Mm
0: So what is is new or unusual in this concept of adverse childhood experiences when when looking at a patient who may come into a pediatrician's office?
1: That's a very good question, and actually that's what's new in childhood adversity. Um, We all knew childhood adversity existed, and it impacted one's behaviors and uh, even mental health uh, trajectory. But what we didn't know until 1990s is that childhood adversity also impacted one's physical health going into adulthood. That's what we didn't appreciate. And today, what I am hoping our medical system is going to move toward is that all medical providers will start recognizing that the patients come to us with physical symptoms, sometimes behavioral and mental health symptoms, Mm -hmm. but what is causing all those symptoms may lie in childhood experiences. And if we don't ask our clients, what happened to you, we may never find out Mm -hmm. what really happened to them and what caused that person going into depression, unhealthy behavioral uh, adjustment processes, (coughs) which may lead to uh, behaviors that are harmful to health, mm-hmm. from high-risk sex, smoking, uh, not uh, having physical activity enough, overeating, etc., mm-hmm. which then lead the way to heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, diabetes, stroke, and finally, premature death, and as early as 20 years compared to those who have not had childhood adversity.
0: Mm. So if I understand this correctly, um, uh, a pediatrician who is is uh, talking to a family and a child who um, has come in because of a physical ailment of some sort. They're they're not <clears throat> going to a psychiatrist necessarily to talk about some sort of behavioral issue or question. Um, the idea here would be that this this um, family doctor perhaps would be asking questions that some years ago they might not have asked. They will be trying to to see whether there's some underlying uh, trauma that occurred. Uh,
1: That is correct. Um, Right now, at the University of Iowa, we established a trauma-informed care task force. Hmm. Actually, this task force is looking into what we need to do. And this task force uh, charge is that first, we want to look at the status quo. What are we doing right now? And what is working and what is not working in that uh, management of our patients? Two, how can we screen our patients in terms of childhood adversity? We're not only trying to develop the best tool to do that, most comprehensive, but also most concise. Uh, And uh, secondly, we're also trying to figure out what is the best way of doing that screening. Is it the best for the physician to do that screening, which may take up to 10 minutes or so, and when that patient has only 15 minutes with that physician, that may not be cost-effective or efficient. Is it the best way to do it through the nursing staff, through a social worker, or is it much better, as Dr. Felitti uh, recommends, to have the patients fill out the forms? We know that they fill out a lot of forms as they're waiting in the waiting room uh, area. So we are going to figure out within the next year, uh, latest, at the University of Iowa, how best to approach this. Mm -hmm. And we are also going to work with the hospital administration to start working toward providing the resources for services if our clientele requires increased amount of services once we discover, wow, this family has a lot of adversity, we need to address Mm -hmm.
0: that. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, um, Dr. Runyon, let me move down to you now. You're currently at the University of Colorado and you are involved in this ACE research and dealing with ACEs with your patients. Can you tell me something about, um, without any names of course, some of, some of the um, things you've seen in your practice or some of the cultural issues perhaps that might make asking these necessary questions just a little bit tricky?
2: Well, so I have been involved in research for a long time looking at these questions and, and including around the world. Most parents want the best for their children, um, but we learn how to discipline children from our culture, from our under- shared understanding of how we're supposed to raise children, what's appropriate. And so I've been teaching in North Carolina for many years, and there the children, I mean, all the medical students tell me about their childhood when they were sent out to the yard to pick the switch, that they were switched with to punish them. Very topical in the South. It's less common, I've discovered, in ex- asking that question in Colorado. We all have different ways of doing it, Um, and they want the best, but they think that that's the appropriate way to raise children. So I think the majority of parents around the world want to do the best, but they learn from their parents and others how to do it. And we know, um, and Dr. Nicolaitis can explain from his studies, but we know that different societies do this differently. For example, in South Asia, children are slapped more commonly than spanked, and spanking is relatively less common. Um, that there are other countries in which the boogeyman or evil spirits is invoked as a way of scaring someone to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, things like time out yeah. and, um, are relatively more common in North America than they are in some other places. And So there are different variations.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I suspect there's some level of sort of acceptable disciplining within any of these various cultures. And then there's the, the discipline that goes too far that becomes you know, beating of a child, or um, you know, something that will cause a lot of long-term pain. Um, uh, how difficult is it for you to discover what's going on inside a family when someone may come to you for uh, a sort of a, a physical issue and, and then you try to get a little bit more background from them? Do you, do you find that there's a lot of resistance uh, in the people you meet with?
2: People are very disclosive to physicians. It's amazing what <laughs> people will tell us when you ask questions. Uh, so if we ask the questions, if we think about it, we'll find a lot of things that are going on in families that would surprise other people. I, I think when you get into a doctor's office, when you're put in a gown or or partially naked and they're asking you questions, people tell us a lot of things. And it's it's an amazingly powerful position. We do discover lots. And then our job is to figure out how to help.
0: Yeah. What, 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 what is your first move uh, when you try to figure out how to help? You see something that seems to need to be addressed in some way. Um, how would you approach that?
2: Well, in many cases, there's an injury, that, uh, physical injury or a concern, and, we'll, and I'll straight out ask how this happened, and mm-hmm. they'll explain what happened, and I know enough about the mechanics and the patterns that I'll either say that makes sense or I'll say... You know, that really doesn't make sense, I don't understand that, can you help me understand it some more?" Yeah. Um, my goal is not prosecution, that's not my job. No. My goal is to help the children and so I'll inquire to the point that I need and sometimes they will just agree to defer that to questioning any further and go ahead and, and start treating the child and but make a report to social services and mm-hmm. let other people do the investigation.
0: Yeah, right. Well, Dr. Nikolaitis, may, may we talk to you a little bit about your experience in Greece and using ACEs there?
3: Uh, well, we have a lot of um, different examples to, to make, uh, but uh, uh, at least our, our recent studies indicate not only in Greece, but in all the Balkan Peninsula that, uh, uh, of course, we have a serious problem. In our research, uh, I would say that three out of four children report at least one uh, experience of exposure to physical violence in their childhood. Uh, while. I would say one to six had at least one uh, ex- experience of exposure to sexual violence, of which 5% approximately concerns uh, uh, exposure to sexual violence that includes also physical contact. Uh, I think these figures are alarming, but uh, uh, to add to what you were discussing previously uh, with this, Um, In the beginning, when we began to to conduct such research in in our part of the world, with the less tradition of inquiry on such uh, issues, uh, myself, I was hesitant that maybe the reaction from the parents, from the public, would be negative, or that some of it might be that way. I must tell you that uh, after five years of doing that job, civil society is much more ready to receive such questions than we believe, we professionals, decision makers, uh, administration, whatsoever. Civil society is more ready to hear. We get comments from children saying, we were expecting someone to pose that question to me. Someone. And I, I, I would like to, to underline this message because I think it's the core essence of my experience in, in research. Now, as far as the clinical side, because I also <laughs> am involved in, in clinical uh, management of cases, uh, I must tell you, of course, that uh, currently, all the image of the, the, the problem with childhood adversity, violence in, in homes and schools and peer violence in children, uh, at least in my country, has been influenced heavily by the economic crisis, which has deteriorated, social support, and, and also influenced the fine relationships within the family structure, and now we see cases more severe in younger children, and this is very devastating.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Resmio, you have uh, this conference that has been going on this week here at the University of Iowa, the uh, Provost Global Forum on Child Protection, has brought together um, caregivers and uh, social workers, uh, many different kinds of doctors, um, people connected with uh, Department of Human Services and so on who are aware that these are important issues you've had many many discussions during this week has there been anything that has surprised you or what would you say has has arisen from those conversations that um, you know confirms your belief that this is really something we need to take on in a in a serious um, uh, way within the medical community but also within our larger society
1: um, well it does necessarily surprise me in a uh, certain way what i've been exposed to over this week um, i was amazed with the amount of expertise that is available through our own community but also nationally and internationally i was amazed with how well everything came together and uh, this uh, tremendous networking activity took place in our town, and we learn from our visitors, our visitors uh, hopefully learned from us or through all the uh, brainstorming. Uh, and what I'm sensing is at the end of the week, I am left with lots of good ideas uh, to carry forward. Um, I know some of my local, uh, People and uh, colleagues and collaborators have uh, different ideas about how to approach things. I've heard from our international visitors also uh, with different ideas and probably Des can share with us uh, of what kind of interactions he had with our other international visitors and what kind of plans are coming out. Uh, we also have visitors from Colombia uh, who flew out uh, to be with us. Uh, and we've developed plans with them. And I'm just hoping that all the collaboration I, had, I have been having with uh, my colleagues from Portugal, Turkey, Greece, uh, and now Colombia and Pakistan uh, will continue in an increasing manner and we will learn from uh, one another. One very good gain from this is that the task force has been working on Uh, a screening tool, as I mentioned, and all of our international visitors uh, expressed an interest in sharing that so that they could do research in their own countries and incorporate this practice into their uh, clinical practice so that we may have uh, some international impact uh, together. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to mention about um, what I understood from your question to Dr. Runyon was that how do you communicate with clients about asking about childhood adversity? In my clinical practice, we already established screening for ACEs. And over time, I learned from my patients is that starting that kind of screening with family dysfunction questions is much safer, especially if we start with parental separation or absence, which is a more or less neutral topic mm-hmm. because 50% rate of divorce in our society, mm-hmm. you know, people uh, don't feel emotionally charged with that. That is the safest place to start with. Parental mental health problems is also a very safe place for clients because it's almost outside of their own existence. And then once you establish a, a report with those uh, questions, it it becomes easier to go down to domestic violence, parental substance abuse, then incarceration in the family, and then discussion of personal, physical, and emotional neglect, and finally, personal, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse at the very last. That order uh, gave me the impression in my practice is the safest approach, and by the time you come to the end of the screening, people feel much more comfortable because of, hopefully, our response to all of the answers, mm-hmm. which will be constructive and compassionate and yeah. supportive, then they feel much more comfortable sharing their sexual abuse experiences mm. with us, too.
4: Yes.
3: However, I should add, uh, of course, uh, uh, Dr. Raul is absolutely right. The funneling of questioners is essential for not uh, making clients feel uncomfortable. But to my clinical experience, several patients want to be asked about sensitive issues, and that you can sense uh, a, a feeling of relief that somebody finally asked those sensitive questions and gave away a burden that they carried in their souls for so yeah. many years.
2: Yeah, And I'll echo that. I've had a number of patients who were relieved that I asked and had expected the person who referred the patient to me, the doctor referred, to have asked and was disappointed that they yeah. weren't asked. Yeah.
0: Huh. Well, you mentioned Vincent Felitti, who began much of this um, uh, dissemination of these ideas some years ago, and I spoke with him the other day. And he, uh, he said something that I believe he also made in his presentation to your large group, which was that um, uh, there was some concern uh, when asking these questions began, as a, as a matter of course at his hospital, there was some concern about the reactions, and he said that they got no complaints. Uh, no negative reactions, no one um, saying, why are you asking me this, but rather many, many, many letters. And he spoke of one from an 80-some-year-old woman who said she was so glad she'd been asked that she was afraid she would <coughs> die with the secret that no one had asked her about and she'd had no one try to share it with. And yeah, that's pretty moving stuff. One, one other phrase that I've heard in connection with all of this is toxic stress. Can you explain to me what toxic stress is and how it would relate to ACEs? Uh, anyone?
2: I, I can start with that. Um, stress w- is a phenomenon, it was actually a name made up by Hans Selye to describe people who have stre- uh, experiences that cause their heart rate to go up and, and in some ways toxic stress is saying like stress stress because stress, although we've distinguished that there are certain kinds of stress that are good for us. So mm-hmm. We know that if we have a paper to write for school or for publication, it, the closer we get to the deadline, we have a little bit of stress and that moves us along. But for many circumstances, that stress increases our cortisol, suppresses our ability to handle our glucose, it changes our brains a little bit, it changes the cellular messaging going on, and there's a biochemical changes that happen mm-hmm. because of that. And certainly we all in the society know that we have a sense that increased stress causes our blood pressure to go up and health issues. Mm-hmm. And so what um, Jack Shunkhoff, who's a pediatrician at Brandeis and, um, in Boston, has talked about is that the actual physical changes, the shrinkage of parts of the brain the, from the constant high levels of cortisol from the stress. And um, so he, it's interesting, he's distinguished as toxic stress. I think one would argue that yeah. in the original definition by Celia, he actually called the same changes just stress. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 Actually what happens, um, just uh, in addition to what uh, Dr. Ryan said, stress is not that harmful it helps us survive as a species. Mm -hmm. But what's harmful is a high level of stress that plateaus and is constant. It never comes down. Mm -hmm. When we're having an exam, stress level goes up, cortisol level goes up, but when we pass the exam, hopefully, or done with the exam, Mm -hmm. it goes down, baseline, low cortisol, low adrenaline, et cetera, Mm -hmm. And then another stressor comes up, this way of living is okay, Mm -hmm. that is our human experience. But what Dr. Ryan said is constant high level of plateau, Mm -hmm. to put it in context, a child living in a domestic violence environment, constantly fearing dad is going to come home and beat up my mom and this fear is constant, as a result, cortisol level is constantly high. That is harmful, that is toxic to the brain structures.
3: Just to put it in a wider perspective, um, uh, during the last 25 years, uh, medicine has changed dramatically in the sense that now we don't only look for the biological instantiation of disorders, but we look to the greater picture. Now we know that certain things like Social inequality, childhood adversity, other stresses, major stresses in life are the most dangerous things in the world. They are cause the the major killers in our developed societies. Now the mechanisms, the biological mechanisms, is something that we're still looking for it. Mm-hmm. But we know that there is a mediator which is chronic stress, psychosocial burden. You, you can find several names mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But it is the way that our way of living interacts with our genes and thus produce something pathological. Uh, So, you may have something happening, occurring in your remote past as a child, but this has a lasting effect. And that is why we want to interfere and try to make it up Mm -hmm. via uh, techniques that we use in trying to get a positive experience, Mm -hmm. get something that will strengthen our organization as a whole.
0: Yes. Oh, gosh.
3: Um,
1: we know about the epigenetics and uh, the impact of um, toxic stress, uh, but is there a way to turn this around and make a person's life trajectory more positive, even if they have experienced some negative impact in their childhood?
2: Yes, we know that there are a variety of very positive things that can help. We know that mentoring is important. Um, that, and... You know, big brothers, big sisters, other kinds of mentoring can replace some of the mentoring that families aren't providing. So there are other ways to get some of the support if we put systems into place. Um, good teachers can bring people along and, and be the protective influence. So paying attention to children and helping them find their kind of place and reassuring them is an important set of steps. Mm. Uh, there, the other thing that's probably worth saying is that the kinds of things that are stressors at different ages are different. Young children probably are most severely affected by witnessing domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Your mother keeps you safe in the world, and if your mother is not safe and you see she's not safe, that tells you there's kind of no safe place. Yeah. By the time you're 12 or so, you're trying to find your own place and who you are, and psychological maltreatment and tearing a child down and telling them they're stupid or dumb or ugly is incredibly destructive. And as in the teenage years, sexual abuse and physical abuse may actually take on the, the leading role, but a lot of people are surprised to discover that witnessing domestic violence actually appears to have stronger influence on young children than being a victim of physical or sexual abuse themselves.
0: Wow. So much for all of us to learn here, and I'm sorry to say that our this particular segment has ended, but we have, for those of you watching this program, uh, there is more to come, so we hope you can join us in, in the next program, and I want to say thank you very much to our guests in. Uh, this first part of our four-part series on child protection, Dr. Resmi Oral, who will be with us a little bit later, and Dr. Desmond Runyon, thank you for being here. Dr. George Nicolaitis, thank, thank you me. very much, and thank you to all of you who joined us this afternoon. World Campus programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Care for International Programs. Thank you very much for being with us, and we'll see you next time. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. This is part two of a four part series on child protection, a global responsibility, the theme of the 2014 University of Iowa Provost Global Forum. Our subject is child abuse and neglect, which is unfortunately a global reality and one that has long lasting impacts on children, the adults they become, and the societies they live in. Uh, While we'll be discussing the prevalence of child abuse and neglect, we also want to talk about uh, interventions and treatments that may be appropriate both before and after the abuse occurs. And in this segment, we want to focus on Iowa by asking who's looking out for Iowa's kids. And my guests are just next to me, Dr. Deborah Waldron, Vice Chair for Child Health Policy and Clinical Professor in the Stead Family Department of Pediatrics at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Welcome, Dr. Waldron.
5: Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
0: Thank you. And uh, next to her is Dr. Jack Widness, Professor of Pediatrics and the Director of the Child Health Research Corps of Iowa's Institute for Clinical and Translational Science at the University of Iowa College of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Witness. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And next to him, very happy to have Marcus Johnson Miller with us, who's the Interim First Five State Coordinator at the Iowa Department of Public Health. And you'll explain to us what the First Five State Coordinator is, I know, as we go on. So welcome.
6: Glad to be here, thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I'd like to begin with you, Dr. Waldron, if you don't mind. Um, you're a pediatrician. and. Uh, Obviously, you you work within uh, sort of the uh, uh, guidelines and also help to develop the agenda for the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, How do uh, adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress, um, uh, how are they approached by pediatricians, do you think, uh, around our country?
5: Sure. That's a great question. Um, Actually, our national um, organization, the American Academy of Pediatrics, has viewed um, child health and the adverse effects of different things on child health as one of its priorities for many, many years. Um, Over the past couple of years, they've they've actually been looking at things such as poverty, um, as well as early childhood brain development, and now most recently, adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress. Um, Our academy actually came out with policy statements about adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress and what pediatricians should be doing within their office, as well as what they should be doing in the community to help identify, raise awareness, as well as start to intervene, um, even before these um, events occur. Mm -hmm. Um, So there have been advocacy efforts, there have been policy statements created, educational programs, as well as research, and as we heard in our um, speaker before, it's very important to conduct research, and I think Dr. Witness will talk a little bit about that Mm -hmm. on the things that the University of Iowa is
0: doing. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you, we'll throw it to you, Dr. Witness, so you can tell us a little bit about clinical and translational science and what that means to the study of this area.
7: Okay, Um, in terms of uh, some of the things that we've talked about earlier with uh, adverse uh, childhood events, it's something that we're still learning about, and uh, We know something about the epidemiology of this, and we know that this is an important area. But I think one of the things that we would like to know even more about are what are effective therapies. And so this is one of the things that uh, at uh, the University of Iowa, the Institute for Clinical and Translational Science is particularly interested in. This institute is funded through the National Institute of Health. Um, There are 62 other uh, facilities throughout the United States our focus uh, is uh, at I- in, in Iowa, but we're also working uh, nationally to address some of these issues. So what our group does is to work with uh, the community as well as work with uh, our partners throughout the state, Iowa State, University of Northern Iowa, and the University of Iowa, to try to get people to work together because this is a multidimensional problem We all need to work together to begin to solve this. And by working together, I would also emphasize that we need to hear from families and from uh, children to know what uh, the needs are and how we can best serve them as a group. And I would say that we're in our infancy, as it were, with this uh, compared to what we know epidemiologically in terms of what works. So the ICTS is trying to be a facilitator provide infrastructure to groups such as the Department of Public Health, um, the Academy of Pediatrics, all of whom we're beginning uh, to work with and try to realize some of the uh, uh, things that we think will really affect Iowans and uh, and children.
0: Mm
5: -hmm. Um, And actually, I was gonna say, one of the wonderful things is, is that actually the Iowa Department of Public Health is working closely with the American Academy of Pediatrics on their First Five program and multiple other uh, programs devoted to child health. So I think um, hearing a little bit about First Five might help set the tone of what's going on in Iowa. Yeah, please. Sure.
6: Um, The First Five um, Healthy Mental Development Initiative is a partnership between primary care providers and public health. And basically what they're doing is site coordinators um, in public health are working with those primary care providers to do developmental screening and surveillance using standardized tools um, so that they can identify those um, areas early. What we know is nationally, 70% of primary care providers use only observation to um, identify developmental delays, and observation alone only identifies 30% of developmental delays. So if they're not using those standardized tools, we feel that they're missing some of those um, diagnosis or risk factors that may happen. Along with parents, primary care providers really do play a critical role in identifying developmental delays and risk factors. Um, In Iowa, 90% of children zero to five participate um, in well child exams or primary care um, visits. So we know that parents um, are going to the doctor with their children. There's no other system that more universally sees children than going to the primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. The first five model really is in four steps. The first step is the primary care provider does surveillance. The surveillance looks at um, development of the child. it also looks at family risk factors. it looks at caregiver depression, maternal depression, autism, and things like that. so it goes beyond the um, just the health of the child. If a condition or risk factor is found, they make a referral to first five, which is in the public health office, um, to do the care coordination for them. So the nurses don't have to spend the time finding resources. the doctors aren't taking time to make referrals out, they can make a one stop referral for any type of condition to public health. Then the care coordinator follows up with the family, make sure um, they get connected to um, resources that they would need to help with those developmental delays or any risk factors. And then the last step into the system is the care coordinator then works with the primary care provider to say, here's what we did with the family. So they close that loop so the physician knows, once I made that referral, what happened um, when I made that referral? So it's a really, Um, comprehensive system. And what we found through First Five is that for every one referral that a physician makes, three other referrals through public health are made. So for example, if a physician made a referral for a speech or language delay, through the care coordination, the care coordinator finds that there might be a transportation issue, childcare issues, Um, maybe they're living in transitional housing. So those are all things that the care coordinator can help with along with that speech delay that the physician found. Um, We also know um, that um, children of uh, mothers that have maternal depression, um, if it's an infant, we see that they're withdrawn or um, avoid um, interaction with the mother. Um, Toddlers are sometimes um, aggravated or um, irrational. And what we know is, if they didn't do the surveillance question, about maternal depression, they would treat the kids, maybe give them medicine because they think they have ADD or some sort of condition like that, but they wouldn't treat the mother's depression. So um, that's why it's more comprehensive. Sure. So really, the first five model is all about prevention and early intervention mm-hmm. to avoid um, longer-term effects. Sure.
0: And so here, you're asking the parent to answer the question. Obviously, the child is too small. Right. So so the parent then has an opportunity to say, "Yeah, I've been struggling with depression for a long time," and you know but I'm taking good care of my child, but I, I have depression. And then and you try to help find resources that might exactly. assist this parent. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
5: and what, actually, one of
0: the good things um,
5: that will help First Five actually move along is with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. We know that um, as part of the essential health benefits, um, Bright Futures, which recommends surveillance as well as screening um, at a, a prescribed time during a child's life, um, will help make that the, be the standard of care. Um, So again, it's um, a nice interface between what Iowa's been doing for many years in terms of First Five to now know that our national health reform is helping us do our job even better. And then the second thing that um, Marcus um, talked about was actually being able to identify whether or not First Five is making a difference. So again, there's that partnership between the University of Iowa and our division, working along with Iowa Department of Public Health and the Child Family Policy Center in Des Moines to identify those things that will let us know that the measures are there, that we actually are making a difference. I mean, anecdotally, we know we're making a difference. Parents love the, the model. Um, kids are doing better, but we want to be able to prove to other individuals that we are, really are making a difference. So, again, that's the, the realm that ICTS can play, along with our division, Department of Pediatrics, Iowa Department of Public
0: Health, um, making sure we're moving the agenda forward for kids. Sure. And how long has this collaboration been going? How, how long has the department, for example, been? Involved in this.
6: Sure. The first five program has been around since 2007.
0: Oh, wow. Good. So there's some, some history there. Um, I, I remember reading when doing some research that um, an easy first assumption might be that uh, an adverse childhood experience might happen in one socioeconomic class more frequently than another. Is that true? Or are these issues and problems that really you know, come through any portion of society? Sure, we know that ACEs know no boundaries,
5: they do occur in all walks of life. Um, the unfortunate thing is we do know that if a child is living in poverty, and about 25, 20 to 25% of children in Iowa are living in poverty, um, below 200% of the federal poverty level, we know that if you're experiencing ACEs and you overlay poverty on top of that, um, there's a chance that your outcomes may be worse. Um, we do know that ACEs are not destiny, and as our previous speakers talked about, Um, We do know that resiliency, and probably one of the number one things in resiliency is having a caring individual in your life. So we do know that changes can be made. So if you do have one ACE or two ACEs, um, we do know that again, that is not, it may affect your trajectory, but we can intervene early. That's why first five is beautiful, because if we can identify at um, three months, six months, 12 months of age, that an adverse event has happened or has happened in the parent's life as well, because we do know that ACEs unfortunately can be um, transgenerational, move from one generation to the other. There's actually a science behind that, it's called epigenetics. So we talked about toxic stress, we talked about cortisol, um, and then I think Dr. Um, Nicolaitis was going down that track of saying that um, it actually impacts, there is the biological and the chemical things that happen within the body, it actually changes the genome um, by causing certain changes within the DNA structure, and that actually gets passed on to your child. So again, there's a lot to be done in making sure our kids um, are healthy even before they are born. Wow.
0: And in your research, uh, Dr. Witness, um, I'm interested in this whole um, business of whether people are resistant to opening up some of the darker parts of their lives maybe. Have, have you... Have you found that that's true or, or people are really looking for some, they recognize that there has been a problem somewhere along the way or that they're suffering even if they haven't had anybody to talk to. Uh, do you find that that there is this willingness to share that with someone who might be able to offer help? Well,
7: I think there is within the the uh, the right environment and presented the right way, such as uh, Dr. R. Rao was talking about earlier, beginning with topics that uh, cause less stress among uh, individuals yeah. such as... Uh, you know, parental separation and then moving down into other areas as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I would tell you, though, that I'm not uh, an expert necessarily in ACEs, Mm -hmm. but my role is really as uh, an individual to try to bring groups together to study these things. And a couple of the points that I would like to make is, you know, ACEs is is a huge topic, Mm -hmm. Um, and I hope uh, we all understand that, that many different uh, facets to injury or sexual abuse Uh, and other aspects of this that uh, pervade our lives. And so all of these things cannot be dealt with at once. And so one of the things that we're trying to look for in the ICTS is to look for good fits. That is, do we have the researchers here at Iowa State or elsewhere that can answer these questions to develop the evidence that we need to make these even more effective than... uh, the therapies that we now have. And it may be focusing down on a few of the areas and not trying to do all of them all at once. Right. But uh, we have to find these good fits and uh, it's like a building, one brick at a time. Mm-hmm. And you have to have the right people uh, present with the right interest to really move this along from a, from a research standpoint, as they say, because it's so large
6: and so mm-hmm. all-encompassing.
4: Yeah. And
6: yeah. what we found in first five, is that family stress is the number one reason for referral from um, primary care providers, whether it's a pediatrician or family um, practice doctor. Um, so even though they're doing developmental screening and looking at how um, children are developing, and it's really the family stress is why they're getting referred into the first five program. So the, number, um, the top types of referrals are housing, food, childcare, transportation, those types of things. And then secondly, are the health needs of the child, so like hearing, um, immunization, lead screening, those types of things. But so that really does go to show it's family stress that people are getting referred in verse five um, over some of those health and development um, mm-hmm.
4: things. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you give us an example, Dr. Waldron, just before we break this this segment up um, about um, an, an example of either an individual or sort of a, a common sort of issue that might uh, might you know trigger your concern with someone you've seen in your clinic?
5: Um, I think actually um, one of the things that I think the previous, um, um, I think it was Dr. Runyon talked about. It may be that when you're seeing an infant, they may not be um, showing that bonding with the parent. Um, when the parent comes into the exam room, they you know put the child on the table and don't necessarily coo or cuddle with the child while they're waiting for the physician to come in. With the toddler, it may be that that toddler that's running around the room doesn't seem to be interacting with the physician or the nurse as well as they they could be. In an older individual, you know it may be. Um, Uh, A teenager that for some reason is turning to some sort of alternative substances to um, um, kind of um, soothe themselves. So there are a lot of different red flags that we see. Um, It's great though that um, we're working with First 5 to help um, embed those standardized tools that would allow decreased variability between um, practice and practice, so that if you go to practice A or practice B, you're still receiving that same standard of care.
0: Could I ask one of you to respond to a question about what what you see coming next? Uh, You've already mentioned the Affordable Care Act that that may um, uh, help more people see doctors more Mm -hmm. regularly and so on. But but what do you think happens next year? What are you hoping for can happen in the next three to five years? Um,
5: Well, obviously increased awareness. We want everyone to be aware of the fact that our children are experiencing adverse events that um, really are impacting their future health. We know that if a child has a number of adverse effects, it affects affects their neurocognitive development, which then goes on to uh, may lead them to adopt uh, unhealthy behaviors. If you have unhealthy behaviors, you may have risk factors that then cause you to to develop a chronic condition and then early death. And we do know that individuals that experience ACEs die much earlier. Um, In fact, adults with mental illness die 25 years earlier than individuals that don't have mental illness. And adverse childhood events can obviously cause someone to have emotional and behavioral stress. Mm -hmm. So we hope that we will be able to um, identify these things early, intervene, and make a difference in the future. Yeah.
7: I think awareness is key as well. Uh, awareness, I would say, and that's one of the things that's being accomplished by uh, what we're doing here this evening and the, the last three days of uh, the uh, provost uh, International Symposium on, uh, on uh, adverse uh, events in childhood. And I think we need to have the people of Iowa become aware of that not just the caregivers, uh, but uh, families as well. And uh, what we're also hoping is that uh, by creating awareness, we will also have uh, mechanisms for knowing what the public feels is important problems, Mm -hmm. which are the research groups and what are the resources we have, whether it's with the health department, the uh, Academy of Pediatrics uh, and other groups, so that we could work with them to they say get the word out, mm-hmm. but in addition, begin to then hone in on some of the problems. And one one of our aspirations is that we hope that we'll be working increasingly with the public on this, because this is a mm-hmm. a public uh, private uh, enterprise. For us to advance, we have to know what families are thinking and what it's like for children. Mm-hmm. If we don't have that information, we're not going to be nearly as successful. So we need to go to where the boots are on the ground, and this is where. Dr. Waldron's programs uh, have been very effective, as well as the uh, Department of Public Health. And I think uh, by working uh, together on this, but working together on problems that are solvable, that are feasible, uh, we will develop, I think, the evidence that maybe beyond five next five years, where mm-hmm. we can bring the cost of this down even more and make this increasingly effective and mm-hmm. have people leaving, leading healthier, happier you know more productive lives yeah that's yeah. that's our goals for the next
6: yes. several years
0: yes and is there anything you'd like yeah
6: to add? I to say selfishly I want um, statewide implementation of first five currently <laughs> um, we're in 49 of the 99 counties in mm-hmm. Iowa so um, it's not a statewide program so in order for us to meet the needs of all children and screen early and um, get them the assistance mm-hmm. that they need I would like implementation of first. Sure,
0: sure. And you know, if someone out there is uh, watching this broadcast on television or they're they're listening to this broadcast and they feel that they may have something they want to discuss with Absolutely. any of you or healthcare professional, um, where should they go? What who, to whom should they speak first? Should they talk to their family doctor? Should they try to get a hold of one of you through the hospital or Department of Public Health? I think all of those
5: avenues are great. Um, obviously, we always would like individuals to talk with their healthcare professional mm-hmm. um, because they are experts in healthcare. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if they have questions about the programs, ICTS, um, or our division, they can contact us, the University of Iowa or Iowa Department of Public Health.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't asked about the public schools, but is there is there a mechanism by which um, a school teacher, say in an elementary grade, if they if they feel that there there may be a problem, and um, uh, maybe they've even talked to their own school administrator. Uh, principal, you know, I'm worried about this particular child. I don't know how that works within the schools. Does someone contact the Department of Public Health or a local social work agency?
6: I think it would depend on the school district. Um, you know, there's always the privacy laws of HIPAA and VerPA and those sure. types of things. Um, but definitely, if they found a, an issue with a child, they could contact the public health agency, the first five agency, and we could help link students to um, services also through the um, area education agencies or the AEAs, they could work through their um, Part C Early Access Program or the Part B um, sure. Special ed- Education. Mm-hmm. Sure.
5: And we always recommend that the school uh, advise the parents to, again, contact their health care provider because we want it to be a comprehensive team oh, that's yeah. wrapping themselves around the child and the family. Sure.
7: Yeah, I think, I think it's a really excellent question, and you're honing in on a, an area that's very important. And one of the things that I would say is a real strength here uh, at the University of Iowa is the College of Nursing. Uh, Also, in the College of Liberal Arts, there are several groups that are working with uh, school nurses, and over the last uh, six or seven years, uh, with help from the ICTS, they've been having meetings with leadership across the state in terms of uh, uh, school nurses to try to uh, look at some of these issues Mm -hmm. and devise ways to, as they say, make uh, the uh, state dollars and federal dollars go uh, even further and provide even more effective ways to uh, to deal with these issues. Wow.
0: Well, this has been very, very helpful. Thank you all for being here this afternoon to, uh, to share this information with us. And uh, unfortunately, we're at the end of uh, the time we have for this segment. But this has been the second part of a four-part series on uh, child protection, uh, global responsibility. And uh, just next to me here is Dr. Deborah Waldron. Um, we've also been joined by Dr. Jack Witness in the middle. Thank you. And also Marcus Johnson Miller there at the far end. So I appreciate it very much. And I hope all of you can join us for part three of this series. And uh, World Campus Programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, thank you for being with us, and uh, we'll see you next time. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the Central Campus. This is World Canvas, uh, Child Protection, a Global Responsibility, part of the 2014 University of Iowa Provost Global Forum, whose focus is child abuse and neglect. Uh, As we know, child abuse and neglect are global realities, and they affect not only children but the adults they become and the societies in which they live. In the remaining two programs in this four-part series, we're going to look at the responses to abuse and neglect, first here in the U.S., and finally in two other nations as case studies, Turkey and Portugal. So here to talk with us about the national and regional response to child abuse and neglect in the U.S., are Dr. Regina Buttress, medical director of the Child Protection Center, Unity Point Health, St. Luke's Hospital in Hiawatha, mm-hmm. Iowa. Dr. Buttress, thank you for being here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And next to her is Chris Corkin, first assistant Dubuque County attorney in Dubuque, Iowa. And thank you, Chris, for driving down today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And at the end, we have Dr. Resmi Oral, professor of pediatrics and director of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Child Protection Program. Welcome, Resmi. My pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to start with Dr. Buttress and um, you're the medical director of a child protection center. Uh, What is a child protection center and how did these centers come about?
8: Well, a child protection center is a place where you can bring a child for evaluation and treatment of possible abuse. And typically there's a multidisciplinary approach to the evaluation. So it would include a medical provider, a forensic interviewer for fact finding and law enforcement as well as child protective services Uh, in addition there may be uh, prosecution or mental health providers involved and advocacy family advocacy and victim advocacy Uh, in our situation in at st luke's our center became because there was a local need for a place for kids to go and a task force was started and gathered about 25 people who felt it was important that we have a place where these kids could go professionals could come together to evaluate these children and have the best outcome for them. And so they gathered the people to the table and talked about how to establish the program, which started about 27 years ago. After that, uh, it, it was realized that one center in Iowa would not cover the whole state, so other centers started opening after that. And currently we have seven centers in the state that can evaluate children for abuse.
0: And the children come to you how?
8: At our center, we take our referrals from Child Protective Services and law enforcement in general. Those children would receive a medical evaluation and also a forensic interview. We do also offer um, just medical evaluations, which are referrals from medical providers, and those are generally just uh, a second opinion or maybe a concern about the child where they want to have someone do a medical evaluation and see what might be needed. Mm
0: So there isn't necessarily a a legal element to this, or or there would be? A child would have been found to be in potential harm, serious harm, in order to be referred on to you.
8: The legal part would be the law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then from there, once the child is seen and we perform our medical exam and the forensic interview, law enforcement and Child Protective Services take their case from there, continue their investigation or assessment, and once they have their entire investigation finished, then they would take it to their county attorney mm-hmm. and see what else might need to be done or where the
0: case would go from there. I see, I see. Well, maybe we should continue then with you, Chris, to, to ask from the county attorney's point of view, um, what happens uh, when you hear from a child protection center?
9: Well, we've, um, we've used uh, child protection centers since they've opened. I've been uh, prosecuting for about 36 years And we've been doing multidisciplinary in our office for about um, 25 years. Um, So we're very frequent visitors to the St. Luke Center. It's the closest one for us. It's also the gold standard we (laughs) consider in the state, I might add. Um, But from our standpoint, it provides us with a better possibility for prosecution. Um, One of the benefits of the Child Protection Center is that the interviews are done by trained forensic interviewers which means our children are only interviewed once. Um, Not by police, not by family members, not by a loving grandma, it's the forensic interviewer who is trained in the developmental levels of how children speak, how they understand, how they think, and so we only have our children interviewed once, which is good for the child, but frankly, it's also just as good for the prosecution because we only have one version we have to turn over to the defense. The other benefit it provides to us is that they are, uh, they are not only better interviews, but they're recorded. They're videotaped and documented. So we have that interview as part of our case file, if you will, mm-hmm. and those are extremely valuable. When we show uh, a reluctant perpetrator, oh, nobody's gonna believe that child opposed to, as opposed to myself, and we show the perpetrator with his attorney the child's <laughs> statement, the interview done, um, we're very successful in getting guilty pleas because it is a very compelling uh, site for the, for the defendant to look at. And the other the other reason is, frankly, they're child friendly. They're, they're centers where children feel comfortable. I have every faith in our law enforcement. Our law enforcement do consider themselves and are wonderful advocates for children. Mm-hmm. But law enforcement wear blue uniforms and badges and guns on their hips. And for a good portion of the kids that they talk to, when a policeman comes to the door, nothing good happens. Hmm. Only bad things happen. And so if we can put the child in a setting outside of a police station where they're comfortable, where they're safe, where they refer to the people as the nice ladies I talk to, mm-hmm. then we we get a much better interview from the child. Not just because of the questioning being better, but because the child is more comfortable. And the focus of this entire process needs to always be on what is best for the child. I don't care if I hurt the officer's feelings by telling him, no, I'm not going to let you talk to her. I care about the fact that I want this child healthy, I want this child protected, and I'm going to do the best thing I can do to make that happen. And the child protection centers are really the key for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Boy, um, resme I know you've worked with these child protection centers for a very long time. You also, as I understand it, uh, offer um, professional testimony when there are cases happening around the state, and, um, yes. and maybe you can tell us a little bit about how all of that works, um, if you're called into, to say something in a prosecution.
1: Um, well, I testify in court once or twice a month, uh, I would say on average. Um, most of the cases that I am involved in are severe physical abuse cases, criminal neglect cases, sometimes what is called Munchausen syndrome by proxy cases in which parents either fabricate or Ill, induce illness in their children to be able to obtain medical care. Those are the kinds of cases that uh, I get involved in most because um, there is a system in our state, uh, all sexual, allegedly sexual abuse cases are referred to uh, child protection centers And at our hospital as well, at the University of Iowa, other than acute sexual assault cases, we do not manage uh, any such cases uh, that we know sexual abuse has occurred. Those are reported to DHS and referred to St. Luke's Child Protection Center. But in the other cases, because the University of Iowa Hospital is uh, one of the two tertiary hospitals in the state, all severe uh, cases, injury cases come to the University of Iowa. As a result,
9: uh, I get involved and I testify in court very frequently. Mm. And and also if I may add, um, uh, from Dubuque and from other locations, uh, we do go to St. Luke's for our sex abuse and so, and minor, what I would refer to as minor child abuse, uh, serious physical injury, however, we do send our children to Iowa City for the medical care, and we use the Child Protection Center facilities at the University of Iowa Hospitals. Mm-hmm. So we have the same benefit. We have the same interviewing. We have the same setting. It's just di- done in an in-hospital setting, mm-hmm. and then Dr. O'Reilly will schedule a multidisciplinary team meeting mm-hmm. for all of the participants in that case to start making some good decisions. Yeah. So we're, we're very fortunate to have to have not only the University of Iowa Hospital from a medical standpoint, Mm -hmm. but to have University of Iowa hospitals for the Child Protection Center as well. And
1: in some of those cases, I apologize, Mm -hmm. uh, some older physically abused children when forensic uh, interview was needed but the child uh, wasn't able to go to St. Luke's Child Protection Center, uh, Dr. Buttress and her team have been very gracious to send down forensic interviewers from her setting to the University of Iowa And those children were interviewed in my clinic with very little discomfort to them. Yeah. Which I'm very grateful for.
0: Yeah. Uh, Let's talk just a little bit about these multidisciplinary teams. You you have named uh, all or the majority of the different sorts of people who would be involved in assessing a child's needs. But what really is, why is it important to have a multidisciplinary team? I'll ask you, Dr. Rob.
1: Well, uh, as my colleagues reported here, I call Chris my colleague as well, from Child Protection Common Denominator, uh, multidisciplinary approach to child abuse and neglect is extremely important, because child abuse diagnosis occurs in one setting, child protection occurs in another facility, litigation um, or protection uh, of the case at the legal arena occurs in yet another setting, Prevention uh, is taken care of by yet another uh, set of people. As a result, uh, my mentor, Charles Johnson, uh, had likened child abuse and neglect management to relay race. Uh, One person starts with the baton, runs a certain distance, then has to pass the baton to the next agency. And if that baton is dropped, the race is lost. And what's lost actually is the child's best interest at that point. So as a result, we have to work together. And I'm very fortunate to report, and uh, I'm happy to report that we are fortunate in Iowa. We all know the value of this multidisciplinary response and working together. At my setting, for instance, the multidisciplinary team is established on an ad hoc basis, case by case basis, pretty much in the intensive care unit. There's a shaken baby with abusive head trauma. Uh, The child protection team is there. Treating physicians are there. Uh, We call DHS, Department of Human Services. They come to the hospital. Law enforcement follows. In most severe cases, uh, Ms. Corkin and other prosecutors have also come to the hospital Mm -hmm. to build that multidisciplinary team and response Uh, to understand the medical facts about a child's situation, uh, the the parameters of uh, child protection issues, and whether there will be a criminal case or not. Uh, And everybody learns from one another in that kind of an environment, and I'm pretty sure Gina will tell more about how they do uh, sexual abuse.
8: At the child protection center, everyone comes to the table for the appointment. So we have the child protective worker, law enforcement, the interviewer, and myself, and our family advocate all there. So we can directly communicate with each other at the time. And like Resne said, if there's any questions or concerns, uh, then you can talk about them at the time. And I can talk about my examination and answer questions about that. We talk to the family and let them know where things go from there. So the families leave knowing okay, law enforcement's going to do this, and DHS is going to do this, and if there's medical follow-up needed, here's what it is. Our family advocate will help with follow-up for therapy or other needs that the family has. So there's not all the different services trying to do their job and maybe overlapping or not completing their job. Everyone knows at the end of the appointment what everyone's duties are at that time.
9: And and I think um, from the criminal prosecution standpoint, Um, I want to make the very best decision I can make for the safety of the child, the safety of the community, and I need as much information as I can get to make that decision. And it isn't that groups don't do their own own job well, they do, but they don't necessarily share information. And that's the benefit of the multidisciplinary. I want to know what the police think, but I also want to know what the doctors think, and I want to know what DHS thinks, and I want to then use all of that information in making the mm-hmm. best possible decision mm-hmm. that I can make. And I think that's the only responsible thing to do. Criminal prosecution is a huge hammer, and you need to use it well, and you need to use it with a focus on how to do the best mm-hmm. job possible. And you simply cannot do that without all of the information. It yeah. just can't be done.
0: Yeah. And we've been talking about the child, but what ages are we talking about? Is this up to 18, or I At our center, we see up to (coughs) age 18 when we consider
8: children, but we also see developmentally delayed adults as well. So we will see adults if they have developmental delays.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, At what point is uh, a child of whatever age uh, removed from a a family Um, if there is if there's someone in a family uh, that seems to be responsible and and clearly, you know, wants to work with uh, advocates and so on? I know there's no way to really generalize about this, but I wonder if you can, can help us understand um, when a child's uh, best interest seems to be to, to put them in another, a, another location, rather than the home they've grown up in. That's a, that would seem to me to be a very distressing thing too, however, however dysfunctional the home might be. It's a big change in that child's life,
9: and um, maybe you can give me a, a perspective on how these decisions are made. Well, that's very controversial. Yeah. Um, and I'm telling you right now, I'm speaking as a prosecutor. I've only always been a prosecutor, so that's my bias. Mm-hmm. Um, but our primary concern is the safety of the child. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, I don't care about hurting somebody's feelings. I care about how that child will be safe. If I believe the child can remain in the home safe with a supportive adult, then I, we will acquiesce to that. But if there are criminal charges, we will get a no-contact order mm-hmm. preventing the offender from having any contact. The problem is there may be a non-offending parent in the home whose allegiance is greater to the offender than to the child. Yeah. And although they are not offenders, that is extremely dangerous. And in fact, from my standpoint, almost mo- more dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so we will then make an effort to remove the child from that parent mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes taking children out of their homes. Mm-hmm. None of us do. But our focal point is protecting the child and doing what's best for the child. And as I said, however, it is very controversial. And we, we fight these battles all the time. There is no set answer, but but that is our primary goal. Right. Right.
1: And uh, just to add a couple of words,
9: uh, Department of Human
1: Services has a very comprehensive safety assessment tool. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, we physicians do not make the decision about removal, even recommendation. Rarely, I feel, uh, or I I am compelled to make a recommendation to DHS, we really feel this child is not safe. Uh, As a result of some of the observations we may make at the hospital, the partners fighting in the child's room or uh, just as uh, Chris reported, sensing that the mother is siding with the offender rather than Mm -hmm. uh, with the child. Uh, Those are the rare situations we would recommend DHS consider removing this child from the family Otherwise, it is DHS who reviews all of the risk factors in a family and establishes the level of risk.
0: So, um, tell me a little bit about your your medical practice. What what you see as a doctor every day? Um, working with the child protection centers. I don't know if you also have a part of your practice that is uh, that is involved in, you know, just seeing patients on a daily basis. And if this is so, I don't know. Tell me a little bit about your professional life.
8: Well, I spend about 34 hours a week at the Child Protection Center, so that is primarily what I do, and then I work at an urgent care uh, one evening a week generally. At our center, we see about 25 kids a week and about 1,000 kids a year, so in general, it's a full-time job between seeing kids and uh, working on prevention and advocacy and, and
0: those other areas in child protection. And when you say 25 kids a week, those are, are first first time you see these kids, or that's the number of appointments you would have?
8: That's the number of appointments. And unfortunately, we do see kids back second, third, and fourth time sometimes. But in general, we see 25 kids a week for exams and interviews. And so that's primarily what I do.
0: Kind of heartbreaking, huh? This is very, very hard on you, I suspect. It can be
8: sometimes. Uh, But I work with a really great group of people. Mm -hmm. And we're very supportive of each other. And our hospital supports us as well. Mm -hmm. And so we... um, Keep ourselves healthy by supporting each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Dr. Ra. Gina,
1: uh, can you tell us a little bit about the family advocacy services through the Child Protection Center? I think it's one of the most important services.
8: Yeah, it's very important. We have one full time family advocate and are working on getting a second person. Our family advocate is involved through the entire process. Uh, so when we initially meet with the family, Uh, During the forensic interview, they meet with the family separately to talk about uh, their concerns, their worries, answer their questions, and then they're there for our final meeting where we make our recommendations. Uh, Most importantly, they follow up with the family. So they'll make a call the next day to the family and see how they're doing and how the child's doing after being at the center. And then they also help the family follow through with our recommendations. And a key to that is therapy. And uh, with the ACEs study and trauma-informed care, we focus on trauma-focused therapy. And so our family advocate has had um, linkage agreements set up with um, therapists. We serve 40 counties, so in about um, half or so of those counties have been able to set up linkage agreements that therapists will get our kids in relatively quickly within a couple of weeks. So therapists are very busy and sometimes backed up four to six weeks, but they've agreed to get our kids in relatively quickly so they can start therapy. So our family advocate will... Um, help families get the therapy set up and continue to interact with them as long as the families want to. And then if it does proceed to charges in court, then she'll help them through the um, court and testimony. Fortunately, we have a lot of victim advocates in the system, the court system, so she doesn't have to continue to interact with them. She can pass them off to the victim advocates as well. But she'll be there with them as long as they need uh, the support.
0: So within the last 10, 15 years, you, you have been involved in this area and as a personal passion for a long time, Dr. Aral, <coughs> professionally as well. Much has happened in the last few years. What do you hope will happen in the next, I don't know, 10 years in this, in this area? Oh, very good question. Um, I would like to answer this question
1: in two parts. <laughs> One, in the child protection field, um, I am hoping um, the child protection centers and child protection programs networks will uh, uh, kind of merge or uh, become more strongly uh, connected uh, to one another in collaboration. We are collaborating very significantly right now. Um, We have medical students, residents, international visitors at the University of Iowa. Dr. Buttress and her team have been extremely graceful and gracious to uh, accept all our trainees and uh, they're exposing them to the Child Protection Center model. Um, I am hoping there will be more collaboration uh, regarding uh, cross-sharing resources and helping each other out both in terms of training and research and um, activities, uh, professional activities, patient-related activities. Um, we are, as a state, working on looking at multidisciplinary response model in Iowa. Um, there is a research being done in that regard. I am hoping that is going to help us in that regard. Um, we are also... Um, in a new phase of responding to child abuse and neglect cases. um, Previously, we used to respond to all cases from the child abuse perspective, and child abuse assessments or investigations were being done. But now we have moved to a differential uh, response model, uh, which means some of the accepted cases will go into child abuse assessment path, but a lot of uh, reported and accepted cases will go into family assessment path. Uh, We are yet to see the uh, pros and cons of these two responses, uh, but we are hopeful that uh, there will be good developments in that regard. Um, The second path is, I am hoping uh, adverse childhood experiences screening, intervention, and providing trauma-informed care to all clients in the medical field, human resources or human services field, education, employment, uh, juvenile delinquency setting, every setting that is imaginable, I am hoping trauma-informed care is going to start uh, ruling the land.
9: Can I just add one thing? (laughs) I wanted to raise that in terms of the the result of the multidisciplinary mindset, which I'll call it as opposed to just having a team, um, the Department of Corrections in the state of Iowa, the people that do probation and parole, are now incorporating trauma-informed care for women um, clients as part of their probation curriculum, as part of their uh, parole curriculum, and we're working very hard to get it into part of the prison Mm -hmm. curriculum before the women come out. Because the idea of trauma-informed care is is based out of a medical model but it is also based on a how do we make you healthy and how do we make you healthy in the community which makes the community healthier healthier and so we've incorporated that as an outreach from what started as a medical issue wow
0: great work you're all doing it's it's inspiring to hear about this sad to hear about the the issue and the problem, but really wonderful to see such creative minds working on all of this, and I want to thank you for being here with us this afternoon. Um, So, thank you very much, Dr. Buttress, and thank you, Ms. you. and thank Thank you, Dr. Aral. You've been listening to the third part of a four-part series on child protection, a global responsibility. This is World Canvas, and I'm Joan Mm -hmm. Kerr. I hope you can join us next time. Thanks for watching. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're in the Senate chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the central campus of the University of Iowa, and I'm very happy to have you with us for this fourth program in a four-part series on child protection, a global responsibility. This program is part of the 2014 UI Provost Global Forum. Uh, In this final segment of the series, we're going to take a look at the global response to child abuse and neglect. Focusing particularly on two case studies, Turkey and Portugal. Uh, my guests on stage here are Dr. Betul Ulukal, Professor of Social Pediatrics and Director of the Ankara University Child Protection Program in Turkey. Thank you for being here.
10: Thank you so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Next to her is Dr. Teresa Magalej, Professor of Forensic Medicine at the Faculty of Medicine of the University of Porto, Portugal. And welcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Resmi Oral is our third guest, and she's Professor of Pediatrics and Director of the Child Protection Program at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. And she has also been the organizer of a very significant conference that's been held on this topic here at the University of Iowa this week. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Jill. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, we're going to look at a couple of um, international examples of um, the management and uh, care of of people who have suffered from abuse and neglect. I'd like to start with you first, Dr. Lukal, if you don't mind, and talk a little bit about child abuse management in Turkey.
10: Uh, I want to uh, uh, start uh, before the 1990s. Uh, In Turkey, before 1990s, uh, somebody uh, believed uh, there is any problem uh, about child abuse and neglect, because uh, some people think uh, Turkey is a Muslim country, and thus uh, nobody is hurt uh, their children. But we know uh, child abuse and neglect is a very common problem in the world, in the United Kingdom, in the USA, in the Turkey, in everywhere, and uh, timely uh, some uh, some problems, uh, very uh, high volume. Uh, we heard a high volume uh, abuse problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a case. There was a case in Turkey. Uh, very hurt, uh, heartful for uh, so many people. Uh, In Turkey, uh, there was a a journalist, Uh, he uh, abused a young girl and then uh, this news is very uh, commonly uh, other peoples, for other peoples uh, is very heartful problem. Uh, and then uh, some uh, research uh, uh, results of some uh, research results uh, show that uh, this problem is not minor in Turkey mm-hmm. uh, yes we know but uh, we have to uh, reach to our government mm-hmm. and uh, some people's and uh, I have to say, uh, Resmier uh, uh, is very important people. Uh, p- sorry, very important person uh, for my country. Uh, she helped uh, us, and uh, some uh, policymakers helped us. And uh, then uh, a new uh, project started in Turkey. Uh, 2009. In 2009, uh, there uh, is a, um, a study uh, a center uh, established uh, uh, is established in uh, Ankara, and uh, we start this uh, working about uh, prevention of child abuse. Mm-hmm.
0: And you were involved in this early work in Turkey. You're originally Turkish yourself, are you not? Yes, I am. Yes, yes. And so you were working in the establishment of these um, of this research in Portugal? Um, Excuse me. We worked
1: together very closely, uh, Dr. Ulukol and some other colleagues uh, in Turkey. Actually, what happened in Turkey uh, was no different than what happened in the U.S., <laughs> except that with 50 years delay probably. Uh, So just as uh, we were in denial of child abuse and neglect, so were we in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Just as it took a a significant amount of work to get people to understand multidisciplinary work is important in the US, Mm -hmm. so did we go through the same process in Turkey. Mm -hmm. And that particular case that Dr. Ulukol reported was instrumental because as soon as I started working at the University of Iowa, uh, in order to calm down my social conscience, I had to reach out to Turkish colleagues and uh, propose to them to work together so that we could improve child protection issues in Turkey. And Betül was one of the instrumental individuals uh, to hold my hand. Uh, and a couple other uh, friends, and eventually we established a huge, big collaboration in Turkey, did a lot of training together, and I have to give credit to my department as well. They have always given me two weeks of academic time to be able to do all those trainings in Turkey, which I'm very grateful for. International programs supported my work uh, every single year, Uh, And as a result, by the time 2008-2009 arrived, with that one single case, which I never thought would change the trajectory of child protection field in Turkey. But Dr. Ulukol became very, very instrumental at that point. She became the scientific consultant to the Ministry of Health in Turkey. The uh, representatives from the ruling party of the time Uh, wanted to pass a bill uh, regarding multidisciplinary response to child sexual abuse we worked together and eventually the Child Protection Center model which I had been advocating for in Turkey and my colleagues were working so hard on became part of the Turkish Constitution Mm -hmm. and several regulations have been passed since then and uh, Right now, I heard from Dr. Ulukol during the symposium that we have 14 centers established already, and we're heading toward 29 in 22 provinces, as far as I know.
0: Wow. wow. Um, you, you made mention of, uh, you, you have certainly clarified and reinforced for us the fact that, as we are acknowledging throughout this program, this is not something that happens in one isolated country here or in one socioeconomic yes. group. It's happening all over the world, and we all have different um, base cultures in mm-hmm. our societies. You mentioned the, the uh, Muslim background, so many people who live in yes. Turkey. and uh, So there, there are, um, I'm sure there are sensitivities in mm-hmm. one group or another that uh, you want to be aware of if you're a healthcare professional or someone trying to a- address these issues. There, I, I, as, as someone who is not working in this area, I would think there is something that looks like the clear case of abuse that you look at. And then there is a larger context within which that family lives or that child mm-hmm. may live or whatever. And it's important, isn't it, for the, for the care workers and everybody in the judicial system, police and mm-hmm. so on, to, to understand what the important <laughs> questions are, what the right way is to ask a question, who needs to be in the room when you are... Are um, trying to figure out what actually happened. Um. Uh, problem, uh, problems uh, are same in
10: the world, yeah. and solutions are same little. Mm. Uh, and uh, Iowa uh, example uh, is a very good example for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used uh, your uh, some. Uh, Positive uh, outcomes. And uh, your, uh, your, I said your mm-hmm. because uh, Iowa is a uh, whole of the uh, example mm-hmm. for us mm-hmm. for uh, prevention, for training, for um, child protection center mm-hmm. uh, system. Uh, We try to uh, change something uh, in Turkey. Uh, Yes, I know uh, some systems uh, are different, but uh, different systems is not uh, uh, hard, not so hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can change something. Mm -hmm. And uh, we try to uh, change. Uh, awareness of public, yeah, and we try to change uh, knowledge of professionals mm-hmm. and uh, protect of our uh, protect of uh, our children. Yeah.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe
10: uh, after that uh, we can uh, work uh, together in uh, for some. Uh, some uh, problems uh, must be changed, mm-hmm. must be resolved. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Child
1: Protection Center model actually is such a flexible model. It can be applied to any and every community and society. Mm-hmm. And that's what Dr. Ulukol and her team accomplished in Turkey. Uh, The model was not taken out of Iowa and plugged into the Turkish system. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Turkish laws are different and professional expectations are different, etc. For instance, one of the wonderful things that they did in Turkey was that (coughs) in our child protection centers in the U.S., prosecutor pretty much doesn't exist in the system.
4: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, It is the law enforcement that represents the prosecution. Uh, But in Turkey, prosecutor is designated with the responsibility of taking the statement of the child, Mm -hmm. which is forensic interview, which they're not capable of doing, and they were doing a lot of harm to children. Mm -hmm. So what we did in Turkey with Dr. Ulukol's initiative, we uh, trained, Dr. Ulukol actually trained all of the prosecutors in Ankara, convinced Mm -hmm. them that it would serve the prosecutor's job to be more accurate and precise, and the prosecutor now comes to the Child Protection Center Mm. and observes the forensic interview performed by a trained forensic interviewer, and the prosecutor puts down his signature under the forensic interview report as if the prosecutor has taken the statement from the child. So within that system, uh, the very wise people uh, manipulated or played with the child protection, protection center model and made it culturally competent. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure Dr. Magalhães is also going to tell us how they're thinking about mm-hmm. this to mm-hmm. uh, use the multidisciplinary uh, response model in Portugal.
11: Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In Portugal, uh, we have uh, an adequate legislation regarding uh, the protective and criminal intervention. Uh, Also state offer uh, good response in terms of protection, health, and forensic intervention in these cases uh, uh, for all the territory. But we have a problem (coughs) that has been discussed in the previous uh, panel, that which is the articulation between all these entities, all they work very well. They good uh, they give uh, good responses for the needs of child, uh, of children. But uh, the articulation it's very difficult. Uh, it's I think not only a problem of Portugal. It's a mm-hmm. problem of Mm. many countries, it's perhaps a cultural problem. Mm. Uh, But uh, as you have seen before, this articulation, the multidisciplinary is fundamental for uh, a good intervention, for a good response uh, to uh, these cases. So uh, my concern at this moment uh, is uh, to promote, well, promoting uh, some uh, adjustments that uh, I think still are, are being needed uh, to articulate, to to achieve a system uh, similar to the this uh, they are uh, they are talking mm-hmm. about uh, that, that is the child advocacy center or child protective mm-hmm. service. Um, which we still don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we are uh, moving toward uh, this system, mm-hmm. but we don't have. We is um, now being uh, perform systematic and regular uh, research, scientific research in the field of domestic violence, mm-hmm. child abuse, uh, sexual crimes, which is uh, very important to know very well our reality and to create our strategies mm-hmm. to be implemented to our relative. Um, we have uh, also uh, protocols, even a national protocol between the different institutions trying to articulate all the responses that children need. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, we don't have a unique place, a unique task force, as was uh, described before, (coughs) to give the uh, um, most uh, possible responses Mm -hmm. in the same place at the same time. Mm -hmm. So a timely and and uh, effectively uh, Mm -hmm. response to the all needs of children, not only in terms of health, but only in terms of forensic intervention, uh, protective intervention mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Yeah. So it's our goal it's to mm-hmm. <laughs> find a solution mm-hmm. to, to create Sure. Uh, Do you feel that the public is getting interested in yes, this? Yes, or yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's clear. Uh, in the last years, Portugal has, has uh, done uh, its uh, um, job uh, concerning the information of Mm-hmm. We have now much more cases being reported mm-hmm. by not only in case of children but also in uh, inti- intimate partner violence, also mm-hmm. uh, for our elderly abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, professionals also shows uh, a greater awareness about uh, the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, even health professionals that are uh, still very resistant mm-hmm. to this, uh, to involve, to be engaged in this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, special because of problems concerning the confidentiality. Okay. Uh, they believe they may put in cause yeah. if they, they report cases, but they are mandated to do it. So they uh, are now more engaged. In that, and uh, with the protocol I referred, we have at the uh, national level, uh, we are giving uh, more uh, adequate and timely responses because, in these cases, um, it's very important to for the diagnosis uh, to uh, examine child to make the forensic interview the most the early, early possible. Mm-hmm. Um, to uh, to avoid losing evidence, to avoid the contamination of the, the testimony of child. Uh, and uh, the articulation is also important to avoid secondary victimization to, to increase the trauma mm-hmm. uh, of child. So this protocol uh, is now very important uh, because now we are articulating mm-hmm. Uh, better, yeah. but um, we we still, still in the
0: uh, process. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, re- thank you very much for sharing the, the situation there in Portugal, and it does sound promising. Even though I know that you're not entirely happy with where you are right now, um, as you look uh, to other countries around the world, Rizmi, with what you know of um, Latin America, um, other other countries with which you've um, you know, collaborated on research or people you've met. Um, do you find that, basically, all, in most countries around the world, at least the, the medical professionals are aware that these adverse childhood experiences and different kinds of abuse and neglect and so on have to be um, um, addressed quickly and um, with some sort of, in some sort of comprehensive way? Do you feel that, within medicine, this is the way doctors are, are thinking about this issue now? Um,
1: It is getting there, Mm -hmm. I must say. Um, Obviously, in the U.S. and in the United Kingdom, uh, this awareness uh, started much early on. And perhaps culture in these two countries also allowed taboos to be uh, eliminated a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. Um, And more work has been done. Um, in these two countries, especially perhaps also in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, type of countries. Uh, But a lot of countries still do not have a structured child protection response system, especially involving multidisciplinary response. Believe it or not, most European countries do not have a system similar to the child protection center model yet. Uh, Although they have all kinds of good laws and everything else, but just like doing bench research and translating it into clinical practice, Mm -hmm. laws also have to be translated into practice within the community and society. Mm -hmm. So that, um, I cannot say, is at the place that all aware professionals would like to see. But I must say, and that's one of the good things that we did in Turkey, Medical field always has been the most sensitive uh, professional field to recognize child abuse and neglect its importance and adverse childhood experiences, because we work with human material, and we understand that much faster once the resources are given to us in terms of education. Um, That's what we did in Turkey. First, the medical field was educated, and then they grasped the problem and they uh, started running with it and carried social services, psychology, and law enforcement, prosecution, etc., cetera, uh, behind them. So they became the leaders. Mm-hmm. The same thing I have been observing in Portugal, especially forensic medicine field, is extremely sensitive to the situation uh, and they have led the society to a significant extent. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Magales, of course is very humble, but she is such a prolific scholar and productive academic. She uh, publishes paper after paper which all modify what's happening in the country, um, and um, I'm pretty sure in Portugal there will be a lot of things happening within the next few years. Um, I have visited some uh, Central American countries. Child abuse is a huge big issue in those countries as well, and um, we uh, have had opportunity to communicate with our Colombian colleagues during the forum uh, this time, and um, we're learning from them about the scope of uh, the problem. But in a lot of countries where the culture uh, is A little bit more conservative, Mm -hmm. uh, these things are tended to be pushed under the rug uh, because, in that particular culture, there's the shame and there's the embarrassment and secrecy, all those things. Uh, But, you know, those taboos are being cleared out of the way. I I can't believe that Turkey has come this far, only in a decade. Mm -hmm. Uh, with all the conservatism in the country. There is tons more work that we need to do, of course. We all recognize it, but I think we're going in the right direction.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, thank you all so much for telling us about your, your own experience, and um, and we hope for all good things in, in the future. Um, you've been listening to the final installment in a four-part series on child abuse and neglect, uh, child protection. Um, I'm immensely grateful to Dr. Resmier-Oral for helping us put together such interesting panels and um, uh, sort of pack one extra event onto her um, symposium this week. Uh, All World Canvas programming can be found on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and at the International Program's website. So I hope you'll check that out, international.uiowa.edu. Thank you all for being with us here in this room or for watching or for listening. And uh, please join us for the next World Canvas uh, program where we... Uh, bring together the Crossroads Project with the Fry Street Quartet. It's a very interesting um, program, I think, on sustainability, climate change, um, what we can do to protect our world, and a combination of scientific and artistic endeavors and whatnot. I think it'll be a lot of fun. So join us for that if you can. For UI International Programs, I'm Joan Kerr, and we'll see you next time. Good night.